with issue for all women. Hello, hello, Mickey here, welcoming you to this week's Sunday Chops. Come on in, get comfy. Earlier this week, on Wednesday in fact, amid the exciting collapse of the Cabinet, I chatted with journalist and campaigner against male violence, Louise Perry, who works alongside the tremendous Fiona McKenzie on We Can't Consent to This. Well, Louise is pretty tremendous too, and I've followed her writing with a keen eye since I read an opinion piece she wrote for Unheard back in 2020, titled, Is Casual Sex Immoral? Now, I doubt Louise wrote that clickbait headline herself, but the essay under it was a fascinating examination of why sex positivism wasn't necessarily and isn't necessarily a massive win for women in the equality stakes. And so I was very excited to read her new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And Louise is not disappointed, penning a fierce, bold, radical exploration of whose interests the sexual revolution really serves. Clue, it's not women. We chat at the top about how this theory is all on a bell curve. Some women are absolutely delighted to be able to have sex like a man, whatever that means to them, and more power to them. But a lot of women are not. For a lot of women, it feels like maybe the sexual revolution was rigged and now we're stuck playing a game we're not really into. But as Louise points out, we don't have to play that game. Now, you'll hear me say this in the podcast. I don't agree with everything in Louise's book, but blimey, I nodded along to a lot of it. I found the case against the sexual revolution properly interesting, challenging in the best way, articulate in its arguments and with its heart on its sleeve when it comes to protecting women's interests, just like Louise herself. Hello, I'm joined by Louise Perry, writer, New Statesman columnist and campaigner against male sexual violence. Louise, hello. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. First of all, Louise, I just want to say thank you for all of your hard work and changing the law with We Can't Consent <laughs> to This. That must have been pretty exciting. Yeah, we changed the law twice. All right. Within the same act, admittedly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, amazing. We achieved so much more than we ever hoped. So it was wonderful. I think as we were pushing it an open door, actually, in a way. Maybe we'll talk about this as we go on. We've tried to Fiona a couple of times, but what got you involved in campaigning against what's known as the rough sex defence? I interviewed Fiona for a piece as a journalist and then you know thought she was fab. Isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, met up afterwards for a drink and then... Um, she had this sort of torrent of press interest when uh, Grace Mullane was murdered in mm. New Zealand and there was a lot of media interest and she asked if I could help out with speaking to the press and then one thing led to another and it's like three years on. <laughs> we're still we're still working together. And also that phrase, one thing led to another, you're not, you're not joking because mm. it all ties in <laughs> with your new book, The Case it Against does. the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, which offers a lot of food for thought listeners. I finished it yesterday. I'm still chewing. I'm still digesting. <laughs> in very basic terms, and this is me being very basic, you argue that sexual liberation comes at a huge cost to women and with a different set of shackles rather than freedom. In cruder mm. basic terms, the sexual revolution has royally fucked women over. And for <laughs> all that I think women should be free to do whatever they like with their bodies without being held to a hypocritical double standard, I don't disagree with you. But mm. I guess before we get into the nitty gritty, it would be great if you could talk to me about sociosexuality and bell curves, just so that <laughs> listeners know we're dealing in generalities and, you know, hashtag not all men, hashtag not all women. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, sociosexuality is the term that psychologists use to describe 
how interested people are in sexual variety. It's a bit different from sex drive. So you could have a high sex drive, but be low in sociosexuality and vice versa. Mm -hmm. What it describes basically is how much you like casual sex. So someone who's really in, who's, who's really high in sexuality is going to really like casual sex, is going to really struggle with monogamy, is going to find monogamy, you know, boring and restrictive and whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone who is low in it is more likely to want to have monogamous relationships and want to know someone quite well before they have sex for the first time. And there is a difference on average between men and women in sociosexuality. And it's a difference that you see across cultures across like historical periods it's not absolute so there are plenty of women who actually genuinely do really like casual sex and men vice versa it changes a bit across someone's life cycle as well you know Mm -hmm. hookup culture is a young person's game for a reason Mm -hmm. but that difference is there it's quite a big one and what I write about in the book is what I call the sociosexuality gap which is exactly this the fact that you've got men if left to their own devices would have a lot more casual sex and women have left their own devices would not. But obviously in the heterosexual dating market, you know, the two populations kind of depend on one another. Uh-huh. And what I argue has gone on with the sexual revolution is that the, the popular narrative, right, is that we've all been granted freedom because we've thrown off all these kind of old fashioned norms, which were restricting women in particular and shaming women for their sexual desire. And, you know, like there's definitely some truth in that. But I think actually, in a way, what we've done is we've almost flipped it, that it used to be that the pressure was on women to be chased and to, and to you know, be really reticent about expressing any of their own sexual desires and to be really shamed if they strayed outside of these really narrow bounds of acceptable behaviour, et cetera, et cetera. I think the same thing is happening, but almost in reverse, in, in that now the pressure is still on women to please men, still on women to meet a male standard, but it's a more promiscuous standard it's Mm -hmm. about trying to match that male desire for sexual variety even though actually most women don't really want to but there's so many young women now probably for the first time ever in human history actually because it's so common human history for female virginity to be really prized Mm -hmm. because they're operating in in worlds where there's no contraception available right whereas we now have a completely new set of biological factors to deal with because we can now suspend our fertility Mm -hmm. we can now have sex without necessarily risking pregnancy and what that's done in a really weird kind of way is that now women are shamed for being frigid and women are shamed for being virgins you know teenage girls feel as though their virginity is a burden that they need to be rid of and girls are saying yes to all sorts of things that they don't actually really enjoy that have been normalized by porn because they're really scared of looking like prudes and having a reputation for being frigid. I don't think this looks like freedom at all, is what I'm, what I'm basically trying to say. I think it's important to say the case against the sexual revolution starts from the premise that sex is a serious matter, which mm-hmm. in itself feels like a pretty radical statement these days. <laughs> so please, can you tell us what you mean by that? I think that one of the ideas to come out of the sexual revolution, which it's an idea that people speak about a lot, it's got a lot of rhetorical power, right? Is the idea that sex basically doesn't have any more meaning than any other type of social interaction. Like people might treat it like that. People might apply their own like specialness to their own sexual relationships. But when it comes down to it, sex is, doesn't have any special status at all. You can sell it, you can buy it, you can watch porn, you can like all, all these things are now completely fine because it's not you know being a sex worker is not really any different to working in mcdonald's for instance this is this is the claim 
I don't think that many people actually really believe that, even if they say they do, because people don't really behave as if they don't think that sex is special. For instance, lots of people who experiment with polyamory will try really hard to kind of undo their instinct towards jealousy and find it very difficult to do so. Like if you go onto Reddit, Twitter, whatever, whatever platform of people talking about polyamory, you'll find loads of people who are really struggling with jealousy Mm -hmm. because actually try as they might, they can't quite regard their partner having sex with someone else as just like their partner shaking someone else's hand or, (laughs) you know, whatever, like completely neutral social interaction you want to compare it to. And I think the problem with trying and often failing (laughs) to pretend that sex doesn't have any special meaning is that if we don't think that sex has any special meaning, then we can't really say either that rape has a special meaning Mm. or that sexual harassment has a special meaning. If we can't have a a particular category related to sex, which we treat as more serious, you know, having this really unique status, I think that has all sorts of problems down the line for women. You know, if you try and say that sex doesn't mean anything... And that, for instance, giving your boss a blowjob is no different from making your boss a coffee. I don't think that serves the interests of women. I think that serves the interests of Harvey Weinstein, quite frankly. <laughs> well, yeah. We know that deep down, right? It's, it's that I think that there's this kind of visceral response that we have to sex. I think particularly that women have to sex. I mean, I know I'm generalising, but I write in the book about this feeling, which I instinctively recognize and that all women I've spoken to instinctively recognize it that men don't necessarily recognize not directly that feeling when like sexual fear is maybe the best way of describing it when you're like a man is being creepy in a sexual way and you have that feeling of simultaneous fear disgust bone shrinking kind of unpleasantness Mm -hmm that as I say women instinctively get like yeah I know that feeling but there's no word for that feeling and that's the feeling that often you have to like if you want to try and pretend that sex is just like anything else like for instance that selling sex is just like selling any other type of service I mean there's this amazing book by campaigner Rachel Moran called Paid For she was uh in prostitution as a as a teenager has since left the sex industry and wrote a memoir about it. It's an incredible book. Everyone should read it. And she writes about this feeling and the fact that what you're basically obliged to do if you're selling sex is suppress it. It's a protective instinct, right, that's there to protect women from sexual harm. But she says that the most important skills for a prostitute or a sex worker, whatever term you want to use, is the ability not to cry and not to vomit in response to that exact emotion. I mean, can you think of any other jobs apart from maybe mm. being in the cabinet at the moment or leaving the cabinet <laughs> at the moment that requires that kind of skill set? <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing, you know, these are like visceral emotions that mm. we're dealing with and you can't necessarily rationalise them. If you try and sit down and explain exactly why sex is different from other types of social interaction, it's quite hard to sort of pin it down in a rational way. But people feel it. And I think trying to repress that feeling doesn't lead us anywhere good. The thing that kind of leads on from that is we've all heard this phrase, particularly if you've watched Sex in the City, and that is the phrase that women are now able to have sex like a man, mm-hmm. which kind of boils down to treating sexual partners as a means, not ends, and which you mm-hmm. boil down even further to meaning having sex like an arsehole, which uh, <laughs> made me laugh a lot. Now, I have got <laughs> anecdotally a handful of female friends who can do that and I don't even think they'd argue with your new definition I think they'd be like yeah I I quite like having sex like an arsehole 
But personally, mm. for me, it's not something I've been able to do. I tried it because it felt like it was something I should be able to do, that I would benefit mm-hmm. from being able to do this. It didn't work for me. And I actually ended up feeling like a failure because my feelings got involved. And your theory is that I'm mm. more than norm, right? Yeah, I think you are. There's lots of really clever studies on this. There's one study I talk about in the book, which has been done a couple of times, where you get attractive strangers to approach men and women on the street. I think they do it in university campuses and ask them basically if they want to go back to theirs and have sex. And almost 100% of the men say yes. (laughs) They say no only if they have a girlfriend or whatever, but otherwise they pretty much say yes. Zero women say yes. Mm. And you might say, well, maybe that's because, I don't know, they're like afraid of physical violence. Might be true. Maybe it's because they're being shamed by an anti-sex culture. I'm not really convinced by that. I think, if anything, as you describe, it's the opposite. It's that feeling that actually you should be up for it. You should try these things. You don't want to be boring. You don't want to be frigid. I think it's actually just that most women, not all women by any means, but most women, just their sexuality is just not orientated in that way. Mm -hmm. They're just not interested in having random hookups with strangers. But sometimes, you know, because having sex like a man has been set up as this aspirational thing, women do sometimes feel pressure to give it a go. Yeah, yeah. And the the problem with that, I mean, it's partly just that a lot of women report after having hookups that they feel really depressed, used, miserable, whatever. I mean, so there's the emotional consequences. But the physical consequences are also a massive deal because women are... One, we're smaller and weaker than men on average. I say on average, but it's like a big difference. Yep. In almost all cases, if a man and a woman are alone together, the woman is so much more physically at risk. So there's that. We get pregnant. <laughs> we have to deal with the consequences of yep. an unwanted pregnancy. And also we have to deal with the consequences of birth control and a hormonal birth control for a lot of women sucks. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so basically casual sex is a terrible deal for women because they don't want it as much and then they suffer 100% of the consequences the negative consequences from it Louise what is your problem with freedom why don't you like freedom <laughs> I don't understand I know and yet it's being represented as feminist it's crazy isn't it I think it's crazy you know mm. and, but again I do have a handful of female friends and it is only a handful who you know really genuinely like having sex like an arsehole which I think is my new phrase <laughs> and I think that's absolutely fine and it goes back to the top where it, which is why I asked you to talk about social sexuality in bell curves because mm-hmm. it isn't yeah. all women it isn't all men what yep. I do think is very telling is that this yeah fuck the patriarchy let's get rid of this is an mm. aspect of feminism that men have really got behind and it's like okay <laughs> yes. women women are allowed to fuck yeah let's totally get this happening <laughs> oh yeah that's interesting why is this your favorite thing <laughs> <laughs> not much interested in doing the washing up and changing nappies but wow they're really really interested in you know free the nipple and all that kind of stuff right <laughs> Isn't it telling? And Mm. I think, obviously, with the sex industry as well, my, again, personal beliefs, uh, I know this is a very contentious, sticky issue, and more power to you for tackling it. (laughs) For me, I think it can absolutely be empowering for a woman to do sex work and to do whatever she wants with her body, and I think that is her right. But I do not think that makes it empowering for all women. In fact, Mm. the stats will show us that for a lot of women involved in these industries, it is not empowering. It is a choice built on shifting sands and sliding scales of control and coercion. But also what I think is really telling again is the majority of workers in the sex industry are women. The people running the sex industries 
our men. Yeah, overwhelmingly. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is actually a really good example of the sociosexuality difference in that people who buy sex kind of by definition are going to be really high in sociosexuality, right? In that they're, they're like paying money to have sexual variety. Mm-hmm. And it's like 100% men almost. It's like 99% men. I did actually write a, a column for the New States recently about female sex buyers. They do exist. <laughs> like a very small number of them who... Um, you know what it's normally white women traveling to places like caribbean and africa and buying sex from black men so there's like a whole other racist layer of like yeah 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 really fetishistic really gross but like 99 percent of cases it's men buying sex and mostly from women there are always cases you can come up with of individuals who actually do find it fine there are some women who are able to sell sex and it's okay you know they don't particularly if it's non-contact mm. so it's less dangerous so like only fans or whatever you know there clearly are some examples of women who, who who don't find it emotionally difficult and make plenty of money from it and it's like from their perspective it's a good deal the problem is that they're really 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 not representative mm-hmm. and the problem is that when we're dealing with you know these big societal problems phenomena we can't just be thinking about like the perfect individual case oh totally we have to be thinking about the fact that this is all networks you know i mean going back to we can't consent to this it's a really good example actually of how just if, if your only unit of analysis of the, is the individual and you're just looking at you know two consenting adults in a bedroom doing whatever they want fine by me like I guess it is fine on an individual level the problem is that no one actually lives in the world as like an individual without connections with other people mm-hmm. and so we see for instance because BDSM has been normalised and choking and strangulation in particular has been normalised largely through porn it's gone from being a really niche thing within the niche of the BDSM community where you know I completely accept that theoretically there are some people who are going to be really responsible and who are going to seek consent really assiduously and who I genuinely find it fine. I mean, strangulation is a tricky one because that's it's, it's like more dangerous than most people realise. Oh yeah, like within seconds, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to kill someone accidentally, but it is quite easy to harm someone quite badly. The news wouldn't have us believe it's hard to kill someone accidentally by strangulation, <laughs> would it? It's just, just a moment of madness, Louise. Yeah, well, that's what the defendants want us to think, isn't mm. it? I mean, even aside from the potentially lethal consequences, you've got things like the risk of stroke, the risk of miscarriage, you know, incontinence, all sorts of terrible things, because you've got, you know, the neck is very fragile Mm. structure with a lot of important stuff in it and depriving the brain of oxygen is never a good idea. So, you know, maybe strangulation is an exception. It's possible you actually really can't do that safely. But in general, you know, I can accept that there are some instances where people are practicing BDSM and they genuinely really like, they really want it they're being really responsible they're consenting fine the problem is that we've got a a situation now where we've got i think it was 39 percent of women aged 18 to 24 in the survey that i quote in the book who's had been choked slapped or spat on by their partners during sex and in many of those cases not with i mean sometimes with consent sometimes because they ask for it but often not with consent completely out of the blue not even asked you know let alone proper consent sort and that's downstream from the fact that you've got this normalization of these kind of practices and this and and you've got the front page of all the massive porn platforms having strangulation images and and you know really really aggressive styles of sex it's become like totally normal and kids are seeing this from a really young age it's getting like inscribed on their young minds 
And then surprise, surprise, they're actually enacting it on each other in real life. And this is why you can't just say, oh, whatever individuals get up to, you know, it's fine because this is this is a culture that we're talking about and we, we make decisions within a context. You have been accused of being prudish because you are sort of going against the tenets of liberal feminism. But you mm. are absolutely not saying that women don't have sexual desires, are you? No, of course not. I'm quite looking forward to my book being published in America in a couple of months because Americans don't know who Mary Whitehouse is. So <laughs> they of Mary Whitehouse next to my face in every newspaper in the country. <laughs> I find it funny because, I mean, goodness me, I, Mary Whitehouse was upset about, like, suggestively placed microphones on top of the pops. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, teenagers strangling each other in sex. <laughs> I don't think it makes me Mary Whitehouse to think that that's a problem. I mean, the response I've had to the book, obviously I do sometimes get called a prude, etc. But the response has been overwhelmingly positive, actually. And I've had so many people come to me and say, thank you for saying this, I've been thinking this this whole time. At last you know it feels possible to say it because I think people have felt as you say this fear of being seen as a, as a prude as backwards as you know whatever it represses people's desire to speak out you refer to it as chronological snobbery and mm. that basically means that not everything from the past is regressive and not all moving forward yeah. is progressive yeah. and that's really true it's, it's not like we're the first set of women on the planet to have had feminist ideas or to have want to have fought for women but it does feel like with every generation and I was probably no different when I first had my eyes open to feminism and thinking why hasn't anyone talked about this why hasn't hasn't anyone done mm. it and it's just like well, I haven't done my research <laughs> at this point but there's there's nothing mm. new there's nothing new these fights have been going on for decades mm. yeah absolutely I mean you know feminists have been criticizing the porn industry for as long as it's existed what's changed is the nature of the porn industry particularly the fact that it's online now it just makes it a completely different beast from the magazines it's so unwieldy isn't yeah. it it's so hard i mean there aren't regulations that's another really like key aspect yeah. of it there's an excellent analogy in the case against the sexual revolution and that is you say that whenever feminists criticize the sex industries the porn industries and how dangerous they are for women and how exploitative they are for women it's always seen as an attack on the workers mm. and yet if someone says look at how factories are like making these clothes and exploiting their workers it's a criticism of the fashion industry mm. and not the workers and it's exactly the same situation yeah absolutely i mean the thing with the porn industry is that clearly it's led by demand you know clearly the horrors of its production right which are sometimes seriously seriously horrible yep are a result of the fact that people are watching it people are you know giving their eyeballs giving their cash to the porn industry mm -hmm. and the people who obviously who ultimately profit from that are the people who actually own the platforms who are overwhelmingly men you know there are like a handful of porn stars who make a lot of money but generally not for very long and generally it comes with a serious price tag in terms of their emotional physical health long term and actually some i write about this in the book about the number of porn stars who like later on become anti-porn campaigners because yes. yeah yeah that's in, that's an incredible stat really yeah. the amount that are like no no i'm all for this hang on i'm not doing this anymore it was fucking awful yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean rachel moran who i mentioned earlier who wrote paid for she's observed this fact that it's very often after leaving the sex industry 
that women tend to be more negative about it and publicly negative about it. And that includes prostitution and porn. And she compares it actually to almost like being in an abusive relationship. Oh, I was just going to say yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, where you're so like, just to kind of keep living, you have to tell yourself this story that actually this is fine, this is empowering, whatever. And it's only later that you're like, oh my God, once the sort of protective wall has fallen away that you can actually sort of recognize exactly how bad it was so you know the porn industry is being driven obviously by the users but the users are victims as well in a way i mean they're not not victims in the same way exactly but like there's a minority of men who use so much porn i think i think the figure is like two percent of men watch seven or more hours a week which is insane that's a lot of porn porn. and they are not a happy healthy group of people you know like like invariably that much porn use is going to give you erectile dysfunction it's going to make it really hard to have relationships with a real person because obviously like the super hd super stimulus nature of porn can't can't ever match up with Mm. real sexual relationships and they feel like seriously addicted I've spoken to a lot of men in, in publicity for this book and heard from lots of men about actually how negatively they feel about porn, not necessarily because of their like ethical concerns about its production, but more because of the effect that it has on users in the sense that yeah. it, it like it's like a perfectly designed product to arouse a human body as like quickly and efficiently as possible and in ways that you'd never sort of see in the wild. Do you know what I mean? Like everything about porn is like mm-hmm. exaggerated and everything about the, the, the website is designed to not only arouse people, but to sort of suck you into this cycle of needing more and more stimulation once you get bored of the vanilla stuff, which is of course why often people end up going towards BDSM because it's that like shock, yeah, it's that yeah. shock value, which the porn industry is really, really good at provoking because it knows that that's what keeps people watching and all that they care about is clicks right they don't care about anyone's well-being <laughs> they just oh, no, they just care about not. making money i'd like to talk about consent because i feel it ties mm. in and you talk a lot about bright lines in the case against the sexual revolution by which you mean an unambiguous guideline or law mm-hmm. but even these bright lines can be murky or perhaps arbitrary actually is probably a better Mm -hmm. word like with the age of consent 16 is a bright line in the law in the uk right now but this has changed from being as low as 12 in victorian times and it is different across Mm -hmm. the globe we can class that as an arbitrary bright line the bright line of consent as the standard for sexual behavior is something you explore as problematic Mm -hmm. and malleable yeah yeah like during me too for instance a lot of what women spoke about some of it was properly illegal you know like didn't meet the consent threshold a lot of it did like a lot of the kind of bad experiences that women described were experiences that did actually meet the legal threshold for consent and that she didn't actually say no but it also was a horrible experience because there's actually a, there's a huge gray area between consent and good sex and if your only standard is consent and if the only vocabulary you have to describe good and bad sex is consent, it's quite hard to talk about that grey area. Because if you can't talk about things like love, you know, how incredibly lame to say that you should love the people you have sex with, as I, you know, as I do in the book. But it's like in a world where you're supposed to think that you're supposed to have sex like a man, you're supposed to think of sex as being 
like a leisure activity that you just do for pleasure it doesn't mean anything to say that actually love should be an essential component of a sexual relationship sounds so lame <laughs> choice feminism i guess yeah. and i think when when i was a baby feminist i was like i think it's about women having choice and i I still stand by that. Listeners, I'm looking into the sort of middle distance because I'm really thinking <laughs> as I'm saying this. I still stand by that, but I think it, it is murky. I think there are shades of grey within mm. that. And yeah, that is something that your book has definitely made me think about and I will keep thinking about it. Mm. Now, Louise, I wouldn't usually quote a review in an interview, but this <laughs> from the Sunday Times made me loll out loud. <laughs> Here we go. It's a combination of beliefs that will outrage almost everyone. Radical feminists, the old guard, 1960s firebrands, will agree with her on porn, but be aghast by the chapter on marriage. Social conservatives will love the marriage chapter, but bristle at Perry's approval of abortion. The new generation of liberal feminists who have known nothing but sexual freedom may well despise it all. Now, it <laughs> proper tickled me. Because I think what's genuinely bold about your book is you're not trying to appease anyone. It is a radical polemic. Did you ever consider it might be too hot to handle? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and actually, I did find it difficult during the early stages of writing because I, I was sort of second-guessing myself with every sentence and thinking, oh, no, that's going to annoy X, Y, Z. And then I sort of reasoned that I was probably going to annoy everyone, so I might as well just go for it. <laughs> and I'm really glad you did because there are bits that I do disagree with you but you make your points beautifully and there's so much that I was nodding along to and then there is so much that I was like oh I thought I knew how I felt about this and actually now I'm gonna <laughs> gonna go do a bit more research do some reading and some thinking it does read like a book that you couldn't not write yeah I mean I've sort of been sitting on it for a really long time partly because of my you know my background was in I did women's studies at university and then I worked in rape crisis and then I've worked for We Can't Consent to This, you know, so I've spent really my whole adult life thinking and writing and working in this area. And yeah, this just really felt like a book that needed to be written. It felt like low hanging fruit in all honesty. I sort of think that once you stop caring about being criticised and you just say what you really feel is true, I think a lot of people think that this stuff is true in all honesty this is what people keep saying to me again and again since reading it like I've been thinking this all this time and I wasn't allowed to say it or felt like I wasn't allowed to say it I hope that I've proved that you can I mean you'll you know you'll get compared to Mary Whitehouse but you can say it <laughs> <laughs> they won't lock you off or anything <laughs> I'm going to quote you at you and you say I'm treading a fine line in this book on the one hand I'm arguing about a naive kind of choice feminism that fails to acknowledge the subtle and not so subtle incentive structures that influence individual decision making on the other hand I'm trying to encourage readers to make particular choices fully in the knowledge that your agency is heavily constrained what would you like readers to take away from the case against the sexual revolution I wrote the book for what young women really. It's been read much more much more widely than that and I'm really glad of it. But I feel like young women are the ones who are suffering most from the problems with our current sexual culture and have the most to gain from the reform to that culture. Uh -huh. And I think the main thing is actually just it is amazing to me how many young women and include myself in this don't realize until far too late that actually they, they are able to say no to stuff mm. you know it's amazing how much that we will do to, to please men and to look cool and to 
you know, the stuff that, that, that women will put themselves through for the sake of really fleeting status, which often actually is really empty. Yeah, I'm nodding. I'm nodding, listeners. No mm-hmm. is a complete sentence. Exactly, yeah. I would also say that for women who have been in long-term relationships and have come out into this brand new world of hookup culture, that your book is really important for them as mm-hmm. well. Because I think expectations have shifted phenomenally. Yeah. And it, it's such a culture shock for women in their 40s, 50s, 60s who are thrown back into the dating pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we heard from a lot of those women with We Can't Consent to This saying, what the hell has happened mm-hmm. <laughs> in, you know, 20 years, less sometimes. The things have completely changed. The Case Against the Sexual Revolution is published by Policy and out now. Louise, what is next? Yeah, readers can read me every week in the New Statesman. I think I might have to write a book about the other side of it, which is, you know, if we've severed sex from reproduction, I think I might have to write a book about reproduction. Because I had um, a baby during the writing of the book. And um, yeah, it's really uh, it's really shit being a mother in lots of, lots of ways. <laughs> not because of like anything essential to it, but just because like, man, our society is not set up for mothers. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. It's really, really screwed. I'm excited. I'm excited that you're going to write about that. <laughs> Where can people find out more about what you're up to? So I'm on Twitter, Louise underscore M underscore Perry. And yeah, I'm in the New Statesman. And the book is out. Uh, it's already out in the UK. And it will be out in America at the beginning of September. Louise, thank you so, so much for writing this incredibly fascinating book and also for chatting with me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.